Amen. This morning's sermon is about keys. Riveting, I know. Most of you brought keys with you this morning. And on your keys, I would imagine there are different sets of keys represented on your chain. There are, of course, the keys that represent ownership, a key to something that you own. It's yours. It's a vehicle or your home. There are the keys on your keychain that represent stewardship, maybe like the key to the building where you work or to the building that you rent. Uh, these keys are given to you by the owner. They don't the building or whatever it is doesn't belong to you, but you have these keys as a responsibility. You have to steward them well. And then most of us have the keys on our keychain that, if we're quite honest, we have no idea what they're for. I have one such key on my keychain. I tried to use it the other day. I still don't know what it's for, but it's there. And eventually, at some point in time, I'll probably find out what it's for and be glad that I didn't get rid of it. The keys we're going to talk about this morning are keys that many of us have forgotten what they're for. A key is given to us to steward by our King, Jesus Christ. Keys that He has given us that represent something that doesn't belong to us, but something that we have a responsibility to steward well. And yet, these are keys that, if we're honest, even within faithful, Bible-believing churches, many of us have forgotten or never been taught what these keys are and why they matter. If you're a Christian in this room and a member of a local church, you have been given a shared set of keys, keys that are yours along with the fellow members in your church, not to get into the building, but to do something, something that Jesus has called and commissioned you to do. And it's those keys, what Jesus calls the keys of the kingdom, that we're going to talk about this morning. I'm going to invite you, if you're not already there, to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to be looking at two passages of Scripture, both passages which help us to understand this concept in Scripture called the keys of the kingdom. Now, if you're in this room and you're a follower of Jesus, and you're a member of a local church, you have been given a set, a share, your shared set of the keys of the kingdom. So, church members in this room, this primarily is for you. If you're in this room and you're a Christian, but you're not a member of a local church, I hope that as you listen to this incredible gift that Jesus has given His people, that you would be drawn towards membership, not merely attending, not merely spectating, as our brother Bubba just prayed about, but actually being involved in the life of a local church. 
And if you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, our prayer for you is that you receive him, that you repent and trust in what Jesus has done, that you would leave here not with a desire to work harder, try harder, be a member of a church, but to trust in Christ. So this morning, with God's help, we're going to tackle this little bit sticky concept of the keys of the kingdom, and I want to show you that Understanding these keys of the kingdom is crucial to us faithfully making disciples. Three questions I want to ask and answer this morning with God's help. What are the keys of the kingdom? Why do the keys matter? And how do we use the keys? So let's start with question number one. What are the keys of the kingdom. Look with me at Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? We can stop for just a moment here and recognize the massive importance of this question. Who is Jesus? That's the most important question, dear friend, that you could answer this morning. Who is Jesus? Is he merely a, a good teacher? Was he merely some sort of a miracle worker? Was he merely somebody who, who died a tragic death at the hands of Roman oppressors? Is he a myth? Is he a fairy tale? Is he a real figure from human history? Is he who he said he was? If Jesus is who he said he was, Listen to me, dear friend, your life, if you really believe that, your life cannot be the same. I wonder if there's anyone in this room that has just gotten tired of that question, who is Jesus? That's an old question. Jesus is asking this question 2,000 years ago of his disciples. You've, a, you've heard it, you've asked it, you've answered it. This is an old question. It's really not that big of a deal. It's really not that significant. Brother, sister, friend, let me plead with you. This is the crucial question. Who is Jesus? And I would plead with you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, don't merely be flippant about answering that question. I would challenge you to, to go to the scriptures themselves, go to a place like the Gospel of Mark and read through it and learn what it says about who Jesus is and ask yourself, is this Jesus presented to me in the account of the Gospel of Mark or one of the other Gospels, is this who Jesus really was? And if Jesus is who he said he was, then your life cannot be the same. Who do you say that I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ. By the way, that's not Jesus' last name. That's a title. Christ literally means Messiah. You are the Messiah. You are the, you are the one we've been waiting for, Peter says. And then he continues, The Son of the living God. 
That's exactly who Jesus claimed to be. And Peter here in Caesarea Philippi, finally Peter gets it. And look at what Jesus says to Peter. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Bar means son of. So Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And notice what Jesus does after Peter's answer. Jesus doesn't say, good boy, Peter, that's a great job. You're going to do fine. No, Jesus says, great, Peter, that's the right answer. The Father revealed that to you, and I want more people to know that answer. I want to build a people called a church on those who get that answer right. I want a people. I want, Bacosan Baptist Church, you. And I'm going to build a people, Jesus says, who affirm this answer, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What does any of that have to do with keys? Look with me at verse 19. Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What in the world is Jesus talking about with keys? Now think about what keys do. Keys open and close things, right? So what are these keys opening and closing? What are the keys of the kingdom supposed to open and close to people? What Jesus actually shows us in the text. Um, imagine after Jesus asks Peter, who do you say that I am? Imagine that Peter said, you know what, Jesus, I think you're Elijah. Remember Elijah in the Old Testament, that great prophet who did great miracles? You've done great miracles too. Jesus, I think you're Elijah. What would, Peter say, or what would Jesus say? Jesus would say, Peter, you don't understand yet. Peter, you, you haven't really gotten it yet. Peter, you're not yet a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. The gates of the kingdom of heaven are not yet open to you. But when Peter answers rightly, what does Jesus do? Jesus says, Peter, I affirm you. You have given a truthful answer. And that's exactly what these keys of the kingdom do. They, they affirm a true confession. That's what it looks like to exercise the keys of the kingdom. It's the power to say, that's a true confession of faith, and that's not. Look at me at verse 19. Jesus continues again. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, Jesus is mixing metaphors a bit here to open and close. He's saying binding and loosing. So when you open the gates of heaven, you are saying this profession of faith is true. The doors of heaven have been opened to this person, or the doors of heaven have been closed to that person. And Jesus is looking at Peter, and he's saying, I'm giving you those keys isn't that strange? Why would Jesus look to Peter and say, I'm going to give you 
the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Why would Jesus look to one of his disciples, one of them who just a few verses later is going to be called Satan by Jesus, why would Jesus look to Peter and say, I'm going to give the keys to, to affirm a profession of faith, to say that's a true confession, the power to affirm a kingdom citizen. I'm going to give that to you, Peter. Look at verse 18. That's what he says, isn't it? You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. It might be helpful to think about the keys of the kingdom like an embassy. A U.S. embassy in another country. Imagine you're traveling. We were in Colombia for a month last year. And if something were to happen to us while we were there, one of the first places we would go would be to the U.S. Embassy. If we're there in Colombia or you're traveling in another country and for some reason your passport expires, you know, you can't get back to the United States if your passport has expired. So what do you do? You go and find the U.S. Embassy and you get into that embassy and you say, my passport's expired. I want to go back to the U.S. Can you please affirm that I'm a citizen of the United States of America? And they say, well, why should we affirm you? You might say, well, because I love apple pie. Or because I can, I can sing the, the star-spangled banner. Or I know the Pledge of Allegiance. They're not going to care about any of that stuff. They're going to want to see documentation. They're going to want to see proof. And you go in that embassy. You show them your passport. Maybe show them your driver's license. Show them some documentation. And they affirm, this person is a citizen of the United States of America. Now, in that moment, does that embassy make you a citizen? No. What do they do? They verify that you are a citizen. That's what the keys of the kingdom do. When Jesus says to Peter, you're going to have the keys of the kingdom. He's saying, you have the authority, like an embassy, to look at somebody who says, I'm a Christian, and verify their profession of faith. This person is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, or this person is not a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. But again, this is troubling if you know that the Roman Catholic Church, our, our friends, the Roman Catholic Church have used this passage to argue for the Pope as the, the vicar of Christ, the representative of Christ on earth. And they say Peter was the very first Pope. And he's the very first human who has the authority of Christ on earth because he has the keys of the kingdom. And he has the authority to say, this person is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and this person is not. Well, that's troubling. And that's why we need our next passage, Matthew chapter 18. So move on with me, if you will to Matthew chapter 18. And here we're going to see that the church isn't built exclusively on Peter, but upon people who confess 
rightly about who Jesus is. Matthew 18, this passage is famous for being a passage about church discipline. It's a passage about how we handle sin in the church, and it certainly does that, but it actually does more. It's bigger than that. This is a passage that teaches us about the keys of the kingdom. Look with me at Matthew 18, beginning of verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. By the way... This passage and the passage we just read in Matthew 16 are the only two passages in all four Gospels where that word church is mentioned. They're connected. She says, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So there's the clear instructions on how we deal with sin in the church. First, we go one-on-one. If they don't listen, we bring someone with us. If they don't listen, then we bring the church. We ask the church to help. But there's more going on here. Keep reading in verse 18, and you'll notice the connection with the passage we just read in Matthew 16. Jesus says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, in this passage, Jesus does not explicitly mention the keys of the kingdom. Notice that there's no mention of keys, and yet the same phrase is used. Remember back, you can scroll back in your Bible to Matthew 16. Jesus says to Peter, whatever is bound on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever is loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. He says the exact same thing here in this passage with one crucial difference. It's a difference that we can't really tell in our English translations. Maybe you could tell if there was a southern version of the Bible. Do you know the difference between the way most of us say the you in singular and plural? If I'm saying you, talking to one of you, I'd say you. If I'm a southerner saying you, talking to the group of you, what would I say? Y'all, there you go. Y'all. So Jesus in this text, in Matthew 18, is all the yous there are plural. Whatever y'all bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever y'all loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So the keys of the kingdom that Jesus gives to Peter are here given to the church. So the church has the authority to function like an embassy. Local church has the authority to listen when someone comes to us and says, Verify my citizenship. I'm a, citi- I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. The church, not an individual, but the church as a group has the authority to say, yes, you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, or no, you're not. Now, your first instinct might be, well, I, 
I don't have that authority. Who am I to judge who is or isn't a Christian? How can I possibly do that? Remember, Christian, this is not given to you alone, but to the church as a whole. Together, Jesus tells us to do this. So let me put the two passages together for us for just a moment. In Matthew 16, Jesus talks about the gates of hell not prevailing against his church. And, and he says he, that the church is going to grow as new believers are going to ga- be gathered in. And Jesus says that true confessors, people who believe the truth about who Jesus is, have the authority to affirm professions of faith and welcome people into the church. In Matthew 18, Jesus talks about what happens when hell creeps into the local church, when sin creeps into the local church. Notice here, Jesus in Matthew 18, he's not talking about the fact that Christians sin. He's talking about someone who claims to be a Christian, but is fighting the people that are trying to help him fight his sin. And Jesus says to this group of people, we have the authority as the church with the keys of the kingdom to reject a person's profession of faith. To say, you say you're a Christian, but you're not living like it. So we're going to treat you like a tax collector, like a Gentile. So we could say that the keys of the kingdom are the local church's authority to affirm or reject a person's profession of faith. That's the keys of the kingdom. Church member here at PBC, those are your keys that you're responsible to help use alongside your brothers and sisters in this faith family. It's the authority to affirm or reject a person's profession of faith. Let's think practically for a moment. This is, we do this at PBC, whether you realize it or not, we do this all the time. Tonight, in our members meeting, we're going to welcome people, Lord willing, into membership. When we do that, what are we saying as a church? We're saying we believe this person is a follower of Jesus. We're functioning like that embassy in Bogota, and and someone comes in, I want to be a part of this church, and we're looking at their documents, tell us the gospel, tell us how you became a Christian, and we're saying, yes, we affirm you, we believe you're a follower of Jesus. That's what we're doing. Occasionally, thankfully this doesn't happen very often, But occasionally in our members' meetings, occasionally as a church, there is an individual, a member within the church who says, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a Christian, and yet something in their life arises, some sin that they refuse to put to death, even though we go to them, and we go to them, and we plead with them, and we try to help them fight that sin, they refuse to put it to death, there comes a point where as a church, we must say, No matter what you say, you're not living like you're a follower of Jesus. And so we're going to take away that affirmation of your profession of faith. This is what the local church does. Now, the question, I think, if you're tracking with me, and some of you aren't, and that's okay, I love you. I can see the blank stares. What in the world is he talking about? 
If you're tracking with me, the question that some of you might be asking this morning is, does this mean that the local church has the authority to make people Christians? Does the local church have the authority to take away someone's salvation? I'm seeing lots of heads shaking no, and you're exactly right. The church, again, is like an embassy. An embassy can't make you a citizen. An embassy can't take away your citizenship. What an embassy can do is affirm we think you are a citizen or reject we think you aren't a citizen. That's what Jesus is saying. In fact, the original language, Jesus says, whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. In other words, Jesus says, when you get it right, you're essentially agreeing with what heaven has already said. Think with me for just a moment about how you became a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. How did you become a citizen? We, the first song we sang this morning, we sang heaven's citizen by grace and grace alone. How did you become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? It might help if you think about how you became a U.S. citizen. Most of us were born into our citizenship, weren't we? Raise your hand if you were born a U.S. citizen. Raise your hand if you were born a U.S. citizen. Almost everybody in this room especially all of us that are awake. It's the most common way. But here's the deal. With heaven, nobody is born a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. No matter how good your parents are, no matter how good of a kid you were growing up, none of you were born a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You were born a citizen of the kingdom of this world. Ephesians chapter 2 says you are following the prince of the power of the air. You were by nature children of wrath. So none of us have our heavenly citizenship by natural birth. How do we get it then? Well, there's another way that you can receive U.S. citizenship, and that's by adoption. So, uh, in 2021, last year, the Butoh family went on a quest to Colombia, and we met a little boy named Ezekiel, and Ezekiel Cristiano was adopted into the Butoh family, and the moment we touched ground in Dallas, he became instantly a U.S. citizen, instantly. Now, we had to go to the Customs and Border Patrol office and they had to look at all of our paperwork, and they had to affirm, they had to verify, is he really a citizen? Thankfully, that was pretty smooth. They said yes, and he got, we got out of customs and continued on our journey home. But listen to me, brother, sister, if you're a follower of Jesus, you become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, not by birth, but by new birth, by adoption, by being welcomed into the family of God. We believe that God loved this world so much he sent his son, Jesus, to live a sinless life, to die a sinner's death, to rise from the dead so that whoever believes in him can be invited into the family of God through adoption. That's how you receive citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, we would plead with you, 
before you leave here today to turn and trust this Jesus. But the big idea here, and our first question, is local church, our job is not to make people Christians, but to affirm that they are. Our job is not to take away salvation from anybody. We couldn't do that if we wanted to. But sometimes to take away our affirmation of their profession of faith. That's our first question. What are the keys of the kingdom? Let's move on to question number two. Why do the keys matter? Why do the keys matter? What are the two greatest enemies to the Christian life? What are the two greatest enemies to your faithfulness following Jesus as one of his disciples? Can I suggest to you, I think the two greatest enemies are pride and despair. Pride and despair. Pride says, I'm so good, I don't need anybody's help. I'm fine. I, don't, I can do it without barely even breaking a sweat. Despair says, I'm so horrible, no matter how hard I could try, it wouldn't matter. I can't do this. Following Jesus is too hard. The keys of the kingdom, when a church uses them rightly, we fight both pride and despair in the life of the Christian. wonder in this room how many Christians are struggling with pride. How many Christians would say, I don't need the church to follow Jesus. I don't need you all to follow Jesus. I, I don't need to work to follow Jesus. I don't need to read my Bible or pray to follow Jesus. I, I don't need effort to follow Jesus. I don't need to be a good husband or a good wife or a good son or daughter to follow Jesus. I'm fine just on my own. Jesus and me are great. If you're in this room and that's you, that's your heart before the Lord, the church, using the keys rightly, extends the threat of discipline. The church, using her keys rightly, would come alongside you, brother, sister, and say, you need help. Keep fighting. Keep running hard after Jesus. Cling to his people. Don't wander. Because if you wander, we will come after you. And if you fight us, we will pursue you. And if you continue to fight those who are trying to help you faithfully follow Jesus, then we must, if we're faithful, we must say to that person, if you will not repent, we can no longer affirm you as a follower of Jesus. Christian, you need a church that loves you enough to pursue you when you wander and to discipline you when you refuse to repent. Do you believe that? A few weeks ago, I had a membership interview with a young man who will be presenting his testimony tonight for approval by the church. And I was sitting down with this young man and asking him questions. I said, listen, this is a church that if you wander from the Lord, we will chase you. 
We're going to ask you, how are you doing? We're going to get involved in your life. And perhaps even if you continue to wander and continue to push us away, we may even, God forbid, we may even exercise church discipline in love so that you might be restored. And I said to that young man, do you want that kind of church? You know what he said? Absolutely. Christian, you need that kind of church. I need that kind of church. So to the proud, the keys of the kingdom offer the the threat of discipline to help us continue to follow Jesus. What about to those who despair? To the despairing, the church gives the gift of assurance. You know what assurance is? Assurance is your inward confidence that you're a follower of Jesus. One of the things that sets Protestants apart from every other denominational entity, Roman Catholics, Orthodox, that sort of thing, is that we actually believe that you can have assurance of salvation. To our friends in the Roman Catholic Church, they're always hoping that if they do enough good works, then maybe, hopefully, they'll get into heaven. Do you realize the precious gift that you can have, Christian, to say, I I have assurance of salvation, I believe with confidence that when I die, I'm going to be in the presence of Jesus. That's an incredible gift. But here's something perhaps you haven't thought about. That gift is a gift that's given to us through our relationship with the local church. Here's the way I grew up, thinking about assurance of salvation. If you want to have assurance of salvation, then when you pray that prayer, you better make sure you really meant it. That's how I grew up. So what happens every single time the evangelist says, if you're not really a Christian, pray this prayer? Well, I'm going to just do it one more time just in case, right? Pray one more time. Walk that aisle one more time. Or you hear preachers and missionaries and evangelists, I grew up hearing them say things like, you, don't, you shouldn't be, have any assurance of your salvation unless you're waking up and reading your Bible at 5 a.m. every morning. So what do you do? You wake up and read your Bible and pray at 5 a.m. every morning for a week, and then you can't do it anymore, so you pray to get saved the next Sunday, right? Do you see that this this type of assurance, it's all about you, and you've got to try harder and keep trying harder and be sincere, and if you did it right, then maybe, just maybe, you can be confident that you'll go to heaven. If you didn't do it right, then try again, but that's not the way that the New Testament teaches assurance at all. Here's the way the New Testament teaches it. When you put your faith in Jesus and come to a church and say, I am a Christian, what does the church do? What's the first thing the church does? Talk at me. What do they do? I'm a Christian, trusted in Jesus. What does a faithful church tell you to do? First of all, get baptized, right? What we're saying, when we baptize somebody in our baptismal waters, we're saying, we believe you're a Christian. That's huge. Do you see the comfort in that? I've been been baptized by my church. 
My pastor, my elders, my shepherds, they listened to me and they affirmed me. My church celebrated when I was baptized. That's my assurance of salvation. Not because baptism saves me, but because baptism is the way that the church assures that you are saved. And there's something else that we do. At PBC, we do it once a month. And it's another way that we assure you that you're still following Jesus. We did it last week. What is it? Communion. Lord's Supper. Listen, Christian, every time you gather around that table with your elders and your church family and they serve you the bread and the cup, they're assuring you, we believe that you're still following Jesus. Do you see the incredible gift that this is? Despairing Christian, you can have assurance by your faithful involvement in the local church. Proud Christian, you can continue to fight as you fight alongside your local church. Let me answer one final question this morning. How? How do we use the keys of the kingdom? I'm going to show you, if I can, three principles on how we as Pocosin Baptist Church can and should use our keys rightly. Number one, faithfully guard the what and the who of the gospel. Now, that phrase is borrowed from Jonathan Lehman in his book on church membership, but I think it's really helpful, and I think we see it in our passages that we've read this morning. Guarding the what and the who of the gospel. Look at Matthew 16, verse 17. Jesus answered Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus, notice Jesus affirms the what. He says, that confession was right. You said the right thing about me. I affirm that. Jesus also affirms the who. He doesn't just say, Peter, good job, you said the right thing. He says, Peter, good job, I'm affirming you. My Father revealed that to you. You are affirmed. I verify your citizenship. He's affirming the what and the who of the gospel. Same thing in Matthew 18, verse 17. Matthew 18, verse 17. Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The church affirms the what of the gospel by saying that there is a certain way that Christians are supposed to live. The church affirms the who of the gospel by saying these people are a part of the church and these aren't. So here's what this means really practically. Our job as a church, your job, when you got the keys and you became a member of this church, Christian, your job is to help us guard what we believe and who we affirm. Think about some of the ways that we do this. You help guard what we believe by caring about things like our preaching and teaching. If the pastor or any pastor stands up here and begins to preach things that aren't faithful to God's word, then the membership needs to deal with that. I shouldn't keep my job just because you like me, if, if you do. <laughs> what matters is, am I faithfully preaching the word of God? And your job, church member, is to guard that. 
Sometimes that means asking questions. In fact, I would suggest that should be the first instinct. If the preacher says something and you think, that didn't sound right, I would suggest your first approach should be, what did you mean by that? But if it becomes clear he's preaching something that's not faithful with the Word of God, we cannot accept that in our church, no matter who it is. We guard the teaching and preaching. We guard our statement of faith. When you joined the church as part of our Discover class, you walked through our, dis- our statement of faith, what we believe as a church. And listen, it's our job to guard that, to guard that we continue to believe that, that when the culture tries to squeeze us in and say, you can't believe this anymore or that anymore, that we continue to hold fast to what we believe. It's your job, it's our job to guard that, to guard who's a pastor here at PBC. When we affirm somebody as an elder at this church, we're affirming someone to help teach us God's Word rightly. It matters who that is. To affirm things like our constitution and bylaws because that affects how we operate as a church. To affirm our budget because that affects how we spend our money. All those are some of the ways that we guard the what of the gospel. We guard the who of the gospel by caring about things like who we vote into membership. Listen, one of the things we do every quarter when we have a members meeting is we give you a packet of information including the testimony of members we're bringing into membership. Let me just ask you, Christian church member here at PBC, how faithfully do you read those testimonies? How faithfully are you involved in knowing who those people are? realize it's your job, it's my job as a member to know who it is that we're affirming as a church? Can I suggest to you that's the most important thing you could do all day, is actually knowing who it is that's coming into this faith family. By caring about how our fellow members are living, by confronting members when they're caught in sin and in rare circumstances removing them when they're unrepentant. These are just some of the ways that we guard the what and the who of the gospel. Now listen, listen to me. You may have noticed if you're paying attention that every single one of those things that I mentioned are things that we do at members' meetings. So here's my commercial for members' meetings. You should come to members' meeting tonight, church member. If you're available, your schedule allows it, church members' meetings should be a priority in your life suggest to you these are the second most important gathering in the life of the church. And maybe you say, well, my Sundays are so crazy. Listen, just be grateful we don't do them every month anymore. We, we used to. This is once a quarter. We're asking you four times a year, if you're able to join us members to be a part of the membership meeting, that's where we use the keys. challenge you if you're able to be with us tonight for that meeting. So, number one, we guard the what and the who of the gospel. Number two, we humbly admit that we sometimes get it wrong. Churches sometimes welcome into membership people who aren't truly saved. Did you know that? It's possible. Churches sometimes welcome into membership people who aren't truly saved. We don't always get it right. When I was a pastor in Louisville, Kentucky, I remember one Sunday baptizing a young man, and the next day, 
Monday evening, he asked me if he could meet. We met in my home office, and we talked at length, and he confessed to me a crime that he had committed. And uh, yeah, there's no class in seminary about how to deal with crimes that people commit when they're members of your church. And so I you know, made the best decision I knew to do. I'm convinced it was the right one to this day. But I said to this young man, we have to report that. We have to report that. And so I walked with him. We went to the police station together. We reported the crime. And they took down information and that sort of thing. And he was a young man, 18, 19 years old. And as soon as his family found out that I had encouraged him to report the crime and I had gone with him to report the crime, they were very angry at me. And eventually, uh, he cut us off completely. We tried to reach out to him and encourage him to be involved in the life of the church, that we loved him, that we would forgive him of the sin that he had committed. He cut us off completely. And eventually, we had to remove him from the church because he said, I want nothing to do with your Jesus, nothing to do with your church. Now, to this day, if I could do it again, I still would have baptized him on Sunday. Why? Because we had all the information that we could have at that time, and we made the best decision we could make with the information that we had. But unless something has happened in his heart, it seems like we were wrong. We affirmed him as a follower of Jesus. We verified his passport. But in the end, he was not a real follower of Jesus. This happens in churches all the time. We sometimes get it wrong. This is why in 1 John 2, the apostle John says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out. That it might become plain that they're not all of us. Churches sometimes get it wrong. That includes when we discipline. Churches sometimes discipline wrongly. Sometimes we're too harsh. Sometimes we're not patient. Sometimes we don't get all the details. All of those things can happen. And so as a church, we have to say, with God's help, we're going to do the best that we know how to do, and yet sometimes still we're going to get it wrong. And when we do, Jesus, help us third principle before we conclude. Joyfully submit to the decisions of the whole. Joyfully submit to the decisions of the whole. Matthew 18, verse 20. This is the favorite verse for tiny church prayer meetings. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. That's not what that verse is about. Although Jesus certainly is present even in our tiny church prayer meetings, what Jesus is saying here is that the church has an authority to make decisions, and as long as there's two or three, Jesus is present in the decision-making of the church, especially when it comes to affirming and withdrawing an affirmation of a profession of faith. Christian, your discipleship will be stunted if you will not submit to the decisions of the local church. I wonder how well you do when the church votes against something that you want them to vote for. You lose a vote in a members meeting. Some of you, I've never been to a members meeting. I don't know if I would lose a vote or not. Well, we want you to come. 
Welcome tonight, members. But have you ever been a part of a, a losing vote at a members meeting? What's your first instinct? Well, I'm, a, that's, I'm done with these people. I'm not coming back. Or are you willing to joyfully submit that sometimes what I feel is right is maybe not right because I'm not the only one here. And the spirit that dwells in me dwells in my entire church family. Therefore, I'm going to submit to the decisions of the whole even when sometimes I get voted down. Can I tell you that our, your elders here at PBC have had to learn how to do that. We've, had, we've been on the losing end of more than one vote over the past few years. So thank you for that very much. For teaching, I mean that sincerely, for teaching us that incredible gift of joyfully and humbly submitting ourselves to the body. That's what it looks like to be a member of a local church. None of us runs the show. All of us together have been given the keys of the kingdom. In 1955, Mercedes-Benz made two road-legal racing vehicles called a 300 SLR Ulanout Coupe. In May of this year, one of those vehicles was sold for $143 million, making it the most expensive vehicle in the world. What if I told you that someone had given me the keys to one of those vehicles and that tonight in the church parking lot, you could watch me use the keys to that vehicle? I wonder if you'd be tempted to show up. I wonder if you would want to see the keys in action for the world's most expensive car. I know I would. But as incredible as it would be to see something like that, what would be happening in that little chapel would be far more important and far more eternally significant because there God's people will gather to use the keys, not to some expensive car, but to the kingdom of heaven where Christ dwells. Let's, as a church, be faithful to use those keys rightly. Would you pray?